Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history at New York University, who examines the unique threat to democracy she believes is posed by Florida's Republican governor and now presidential candidate, Ron DeSantis. Lindsay Koshgarian, program director of the National Priorities Project, who discusses how the Pentagon's massive, ever-increasing budget relates to recent negotiations over the federal debt ceiling. And Lori Martin, co-founder and executive director of Haven's Harvest, who talks about the work her group does rescuing food, preventing food waste, while feeding the hungry. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. On May 11th, U.S. Ambassador Ruben Brigidi accused the South African government of supplying weapons to Russia, although South Africa has long declared itself to be non-aligned and neutral in the Ukraine war. Brigidi claimed a Russian merchant ship, the Lady R, subject to American sanctions, was loaded with weapons and ammunition last December in Simonstown Naval Base before heading back to Russia. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa said in a statement that no evidence has been provided to support these allegations, but his government planned to convene a commission to conduct an independent inquiry into the matter. South Africa's leaders have frequently called for a negotiated settlement in the Ukraine war. In February of this year, South Africa convened naval war games off its coast that included both the Russian and Chinese military. Later this year, Pretoria will host the BRICS Summit, a grouping of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Russian President Vladimir Putin has been invited to that summit. While South Africa's ruling African National Congress Party was supported by the former Soviet Union and Russia during the apartheid era, today the European Union and the U.S. are far bigger trading partners. Three Western states, California, Nevada, and Arizona, have agreed to a new formula to use less water from the drought-stricken Colorado River Basin. The agreement, announced on May 22nd, proposes that the three states' water districts, Native American tribes and farms, cut about 13% of their total water use in the lower Colorado Basin, a reduction that will likely trigger significant water restrictions for the region's residents and farmers. The three states that will receive $1.2 billion in aid from the Biden administration's Inflation Reduction Act has a goal of conserving 3 million acre-feet of water over the next three years. Of these savings, 2.3 million acre-feet will be compensated by the federal government. More than 40 million people rely on the water that the nearly 1,500-mile river provides, including residents in Los Angeles, Phoenix, and Las Vegas. A 20-year mega-drought due to climate change has reduced water levels in Lake Mead and Lake Powell to historic lows, putting water access below the dams at risk. Despite this winter's record rain and snowfall, it will not be enough to end the region's drought emergency. Across central Appalachia, 
a new generation of coal miners are dying from black lung disease. Black lung is spreading among miners who work mostly in non-union mines in Kentucky, Virginia, and West Virginia. Miners contract black lung by breathing in silica dust in underground mines. Today, coal miners must dig through more layers of silica-laden rock to reach Appalachia's rich coal seams. Silica dust is 20 times more dangerous than coal dust. Naomi Hall, an epidemiologist with the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, noted the spike in black lung disease started in 2010 among younger miners and continued to grow with little media attention. In Kentucky and West Virginia, black lung disease impacts one in eight coal miners who worked underground more than 20 years. The rate of disease has increased sharply over the last decade. In these times reports that mine operators have regularly violated federal mine safety rules for decades. Unscrupulous operators often manipulate dust samples to avoid mitigating health risks. Black lung and all of its attendant horrors are completely preventable. With proper engineering controls, full compliance with safety regulations, and up-to-date exposure standards, no one would have to suffer and die of this disease. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Fresh off the botched official launch of his presidential campaign with billionaire Elon Musk, known for frequently parroting baseless conspiracy theories and white supremacist talking points, extremist Florida Governor Ron DeSantis set off for campaign events in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. Trailing disgraced former President Donald Trump by 30 points in recent Republican presidential primary polls, it's still quite possible that DeSantis' fortunes could turn around, given his number two position in those polls, and the likelihood that Trump will face new indictments on serious criminal charges in the coming months. DeSantis's cocky, aggressive style was captured in a recent Fox News interview, where he said, quote, Everyone knows that if I'm the nominee, I'll beat Biden and will serve two terms, and I'll be able to destroy leftism in this country and leave woke ideology in the dustbin of history, Many political observers believe that under DeSantis, Florida has served as a laboratory for the development of fascist policies and laws that suppress public education, communities of color, the LGBTQ community, and immigrants that are quickly being adopted by other Republican-controlled states nationwide. Your reporter spoke with Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history and Italian studies at New York University, who expands on her recent observation that, if he's elected president, the Florida Republican governor will destroy our democracy with deadly precision. I don't use the word fascist for many people, and for a very long time I didn't use it with about Trump. But uh, Ron DeSantis really fits. He's dangerous because he has no principles of his own, 
and he glommed on to Trump's, you know, became a very uh, loyal uh, Trump follower in order to get Trump's endorsement when he was running for governor. And he, he used his own, you know, infant as a prop. And he's got this theme of using kids as props. So anyone and anything only exists to help him get where he needs to go. And he's shown that he will do anything, just like Mussolini did, just like every authoritarian. He, he has no scruples. And so, you know, when he says Florida is where woke goes to die and he is, you know, clearly he's doing those fake arrests of of black people, he's persecuting LGBTQ populations, the message I always say is he's not going to stop with those people. He's going to go after anyone who uh, doesn't align with his principles. And indeed, he's um, made a lot of enemies within Florida of other politicians who are endorsing Trump because he's acted like a dictator in his home state. You know, many observers, including yourself, have looked on Florida as serving as a laboratory for the development of fascist policy and laws under Ron DeSantis. What are some of your concerns about what's going on specifically in Florida, especially with regard to the censorship of U.S. history the banning of books, the targeting of the LGBTQ community, the criminalization of peaceful protest, and the imposition of restrictions and penalties targeting journalists, it seems that what's going on in Florida under DeSantis is moving across borders to other Republican-controlled states. Absolutely. And and in fact, there's a tradition of autocrats um, starting out as kind of uh, local dictators in their Uh, For example, Duterte, the the former president of the Philippines, who was a total thug, he tested out his thuggish policies when he was mayor of Davao. And Modi, the uh, Indian head of state now, who's an authoritarian, he, you know, was in charge of this of this region. And he did extremely authoritarian, repressive things. So there's a history of people using their local authority to test out these authoritarian uh, playbooks. And then DeSantis and people around him as press secretaries, they've been always very clear about wanting to scale this up, um, even way before he you know, said he was running for president. That's what's scary about this. And the other thing that is concerning is that In authoritarian history, there also is this syndrome where somebody like Trump comes along, or Duterte, total loose cannon, very open about being a thug. DeSantis is not going to say, I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone. DeSantis is not going to say he could shoot someone out loud, right? He may have other people do it, but he wouldn't boast about it. When you have these boasters, these blusterers, sometimes people get tired of them. They get tired of the chaos. And so they start to desire somebody who's just as extremist but behaves better, (laughs) Um, seems more, quote, normal. And in the Philippines, that produced the Marcos, the return of the Marcos family, even though they were horrible dictators. Uh, Bang Bang Marcos, quote, seems more normal. He doesn't talk about throwing people out of helicopters. So here we have Ron DeSantis. And so that's why you have, uh, you know, Rich Lowry, a conservative commentator in the New York Times saying, oh, no, DeSantis is normal. We need this normality now. He's not normal at all. He's, ex- he's a far-right extremist, but he's smarter in the way he presents himself, and so people might fall for this, and that's very concerning. 
And on the subject of violence, both Trump and more recently DeSantis say they would pardon January 6th insurrectionists convicted of crimes, including those who were more recently convicted of seditious conspiracy, an extremely rare charge in the United States. All this while the Department of Homeland Security is warning of increased violence from right-wing and white supremacist terrorist groups. At the same time, we've seen a 400% increase of threats violent threats against members of Congress. Yeah, it's all of a piece. And in fact, uh, some in my Lucid archive, I think it, I wrote this last year, an essay called Pardon Me about how authoritarians always pardon the thugs who do their dirty work. When Mussolini declared dictatorship, he, he had fascism was a decentralized militia movement of like Proud Boys, Oath Keeper equivalents who went around bashing heads for years, and they got to power. First thing he does as dictator, pardons all of the, they were called political criminals. All the thugs, all the black shirts who got him to power were pardoned. Uh, Pinochet, the Chilean dictator who tortured people, he pardoned all the military who did human rights abuses. The reason you do the pardons is that you indebt people to you, uh, you make them loyal to you, But you send a message that violence and crime will be tolerated because authoritarianism is about lawlessness. It's about justifying lawlessness. We've talked about violence, also corruption and all the other things. But the pardons are about that. So when, you know, DeSantis, who never has any original thoughts in his head, he just does what Daddy Trump tells him to do in a way, even though he's against him now, uh, he repeats what Trump does. So now he comes on the bandwagon saying, oh, yes, I would pardon people, too, and I would pardon Daddy Trump. But he has to do that because that's where the party is now. That was Ruth Ben-Ghiat, professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and author of the book Strongmen, Mussolini to the Present. Professor Ben-Ghiat writes about democracy and autocracy on her Lucid Substack page. Learn more about the fascist threat to U.S. democracy by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Over the last few months, the Republican-controlled U.S. House of Representatives engaged in an extortion scheme where the GOP threatened to destroy the U.S. economy by refusing to increase the federal debt ceiling and pay the nation's bills unless Democrats agreed to draconian cuts to the nation's social programs. While President Biden initially refused to negotiate with Republican hostage-takers, demanding a clean debt limit increase with no strings attached, talks to strike a deal soon followed. Heeding Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's warning that failure to raise the debt ceiling by June 5th would result in economic and financial catastrophe, President Biden and Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy reached a tentative agreement on May 28th that extends the debt limit for two years, but still requires congressional approval. The deal includes two years of spending caps, additional work requirements for food stamp recipients, and a decrease in IRS funding, totaling $136 billion in cuts of discretionary spending. While the nation's poor lost ground... The clear winner in the debt ceiling deal was the Pentagon, which will see a record-high $886 billion budget, a 3.3% increase over the current year. Your reporter spoke with Lindsay Kashgarian, Program Director with the National Priorities Project, 
who discusses her group's new report titled The Warfare State, How Funding for Militarism Compromises Our Welfare, underscoring the massive Pentagon budget's outsized role in our national debate over federal priorities. First, I want to acknowledge that, of course, all of this is a completely manufactured crisis. Um, none of this had to be had to happen. Republicans wanted to cut programs they didn't like, and they manufactured a threat through uh, the refusing to raise the debt ceiling um, that would threaten to give them what they want or they would tank the economy. So that's how we got here. But once they got to that place, the programs that they don't like, of course, actually account for a relatively small portion of the discretionary budget um, that they're looking to cap. Um, so the discretionary budget this year in 2023 is $1.8 trillion overall. And military and militarism um, domestically account for more than 60%, 62% or $1.1 trillion out of that budget. So they say they want to cut this piece of the pie because, you know, they, they say they're worried about the debt. They say they're worried about deficits, whatever it is. If they were really looking to cut that spending, it would only make sense for them to look to the largest portion of it. And that is uh, the military and then domestic militarism programs like border control and deportations and detentions, um, mass incarceration and law enforcement. So most of those things, however, were not part of the settlement um, that Biden and the Republicans, the deal that they've struck that we've that we've heard about, which, of course, has not yet passed Congress. While it's true that the Republicans uh, ignore the cuts that certainly could be made in this largest portion of the federal discretionary budget, it's also true that Democrats stay away from that as well, right? I mean, most Democrats in Congress uh, shy away from uh, seriously discussing cutting back the Pentagon budget. It only seems to go up. This deal, this tentative deal between Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy appears to allow for a 3.3% increase in the current year's Pentagon budget. Like you said, the Pentagon budget only seems to go up year after year. Uh, and that's true regardless of who's in control of Congress and who's in control in the White House. Um, we actually have now the highest peacetime military budget on record. And uh, the end of the Afghanistan war when the U.S. withdrew troops was the first time on record when the U.S ended a major military engagement, and military spending went up instead of down. Normally, you end a war, you can spend less on the military, you downsize some, you save some money. That is not what happened when the U.S. pulled troops out of Afghanistan. Military spending actually went up. So it's at a record high level right now, uh, the highest on record during peacetime. And we can thank uh, President Biden and, and the democratically controlled Congress for a lot of that. So, yes, it's absolutely a bipartisan problem. Um, that said, their Congressional Progressive Caucus and its leaders and many of, of the members um, have called out that problem and called out uh, the growing military budget and the need to rebalance our discretionary budget priorities away from the military and toward domestic priorities. So there is a sizable contingent. Um, we've had dozens of, of members of Congress sign on to support significant uh, cuts to the military budget. Lindsay, just a final question. In this report, you point out that the true cost of military spending that this country is now engaged in is unsustainable and that this level of spending will eventually bankrupt the basic foundations of civil society. 
as we conclude here, just say a word about your, your long-range concerns here. Yeah, we, we really have a choice to make. You know, we're having these sort of knock-down, drag-out fights over things like student debt relief and, you know, whether we'll have an extension of the child tax credit that was a tax credit for families that cut child poverty nearly in half. And we're losing a lot of these fights. And if we keep investing at the level that we are in militarization and war, we are going to keep losing those fights and we are going to end up with fewer and fewer of the bedrock foundation building blocks that we need for civilization. We're losing out on education. We're losing out on childcare. We're losing out on healthcare. And a thriving modern society is not possible without any of those things. So we really, we really have choices that we need to make here, and we can't have it both ways. That was Lindsay Kashgarian, Program Director with the National Priorities Project. Find a link to read her group's new report titled The Warfare State, How Funding for Militarism Compromises Our Welfare by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. At least one-third of the total amount of food produced in the world each year, including in the U.S., is wasted. At the same time, millions of people here and abroad struggle to find enough food to eat or face actual starvation. Disposing of food also contributes to the environmental and climate crisis, as decomposing organic matter attracts vermin and produces methane, a global warming gas that is 100 times more destructive than carbon dioxide. Enter food rescue organizations, which exist in the U.S. and elsewhere, to prevent edible food from entering the waste stream and feed people in need. Haven's Harvest in New Haven, Connecticut, is one such organization. Founded in 2015 by a mom and her children, it now boasts more than 400 volunteers who pick up prepared food as well as bakery goods from 150 sites such as supermarkets, universities, and social events, then delivering it to 250 locations that include senior centers, subsidized living sites, health clinics, and libraries. In each of the past three years, Haven's Harvest has diverted 1.5 million pounds of food from the waste stream. Their work is enabled by the phone app Food Rescue Hero which is used by 15 partners in dozens of community organizations in the U.S. and Canada. Collectively, these groups have kept 68 million pounds of food out of the waste stream and mitigated the equivalent of 37 million pounds of CO2. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Laurie Martin, Haven's Harvest co-founder and executive director, who talks about her work and future plans. We were picking up food, you know, really wonderful, delicious, nutritious food, and then we didn't have places for it. So we reached out initially to the Elderly Services Department in New Haven and said, can we connect with some of your sites because we have this wonderful food to share. It just started like that. We had a meeting with the city, and then someone called to say, I was at a bakery, you know, it was at closing time, and they were tipping trays of sandwiches and pastries into the trash. 
And so the city employee called to say, can you pick up that food? You know, I told them that there is a way. And that's, you know, it just kept growing like that, just, just by word of mouth. And then eventually we needed an organization that really reflected our values around food sharing, certainly within an anti-racist framework, and just noticing and, and saying aloud that racism is a part of the systems that keep people you know, in certain places in our society, and not that we're going to fix this with recovered food, but that also our intention is to get food into the hand of marginalized folks. So environmental environmental justice communities in New Haven is largely black and brown communities. They're not the only mouths we feed, certainly, but they are the first mouths we want to feed. How do you make the matches? There's got to be, you know, I don't know how often or what percentage of the time when you pick up and you think you're getting it out of the waste stream and then you're delivering it somewhere and it ends up getting thrown out anyway. So I don't know. Is, is there a way to track that? I'm not sure if there's a way to track that, but we know that's a pain point. We're working on a food recovery hub. So we want to create the first food recovery hub in Connecticut and we want to do it here in New Haven. It's hard to make that match when we're doing it on the fly because we make these connections and an amazing volunteer will show up. But sometimes the donation, you know, isn't really matching the site size. And we can't control for all of those because we're doing it on the fly and we have a tiny space in a a rented warehouse. So we really do need a site with ample cold storage and other storage and a commercial kitchen. For me, at least, as as a volunteer, there's a hierarchy of places that I would like to pick up from. I do not like to pick up from donut shops. Donuts still count. And even if they're the mass-made ones, right, people should get treats if they want them. And I don't want to be the gatekeeper. That's not, that's not what I go after. Right? What I really want is protein and produce. But this food is still being made, and it's going to waste. What our food does, even when it's bread, what we know it does is it buffers a family's budget or an individual's budget. So if you get free bread, then you have an extra couple dollars to spend for the other pieces that you need for your full meal. Across the nation, we waste 40% of the food we, we produce. That's how we see ourselves as part of this environmental movement, is we can address that. And there is certainly a lot of edible food that we should be doing something with, um, and then also the food scraps. So what's important to me is that we do two things. One is reduce the food waste by recovering food and, and making it part of our culture. That first we do, what we do is donate food. And there's a federal law that got passed in late 2022 and then signed by the the president in early 23, and that's the Food Donation Improvement Act. It broadens the scope of liability protection for folks who are donating food. It also encourages, in particular, um, educational institutions to donate, which has been interesting because that's been an obstacle around schools thinking that they should be throwing their food away, but in fact they're encouraged to donate it. And the other thing it does, it allows food rescue and food banks to sell food at modest cost, food that they've recovered, in order to help pay for operations. So that's an interesting model, and we would like that sort of a micro-grocery or a social grocery store as part of our hub so that we have a place where people can come and get food, you know, at a modest cost. That was Lori Martin, co-founder and executive director of Haven's Harvest in New Haven, Connecticut. You can find more information on her group and other food rescue organizations across the U.S. by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, 
a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WRFN in Nashville, Tennessee, KMRE in Bellingham, Washington, REC Delmarva FM nationwide, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.